And we are live from the Empire of Lies and Just Outside the Matrix. It's time for another edition of the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. So we have a very important show today. And let's talk about who our guests are going to be. In the first hour, Susan Pye, immigration expert, will be joining us to talk about the Ukrainians at the southern border. Then in the second hour, we have as our guest host, Carter Laren from Unsafe Space. Always love having Carter on. And Taylor Hudak talking about the Julian Assange extradition that was ruled on yesterday. And we're taking your calls, 202-521-1320, on the backstory. And I say it's important because there's news about Gonzalo Lira. Not directly. Still, what we're hearing is that he's been captured and killed. But it's not been confirmed. We've not seen the body yet. But the important news there, did you see this, Rod? The Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Russia issued a statement about him? Yeah, I did see that this morning. I did see that. And this is a big deal. Now, let me point out that the Russian government should not be who is reporting on this. Number one is the United States government. And number two is the Chilean government. But I think it's important that Russia, by making a statement about Gonzalo Lira, which I'm going to read in a moment, because it's an amazing statement, will draw some attention to this. Unfortunately, and I say this by, I start this by saying, I appreciate the Russian government bring this up. But I know the effect that's going to have. This is going to cement the, and by the way, it's not their fault. But I think, unfortunately, this will cement this as Gonzalo Lira was a Russian stooge. Do you think I'm right, Rod? Um, I've been thinking about that since this morning. Um, I think in part, I would agree with you in another part. I think they don't want to touch it as far as the American media. And I don't know Chile's, uh, stance on how they're influenced by America on what to, you know, what, what to say and what not to say. But I, th- I think the American government doesn't, and the media don't want to touch this because it would bring light to the work that Gonzalo was doing and, you know, him talking about the Azov battalion and how the people in Ukraine are being, the civilians in Ukraine are being hurt and being murdered and being used as human shields. So they don't want to touch it because it bring attention. Uh, so that's how I've been looking at it. They, they, this is nuclear to them. Cause if, you know, if uh, hopefully, hopefully we're all wrong and Gonzalo is, you know, can come out and be uh, found alive, but you know, uh, doesn't look good about to go in a week, but I, they don't want to touch this at all because it's, it's just too lethal for them. And I think it also touches on Whatever he was covering, he should not have been kidnapped and killed. 
whatever he was covering, whatever opinion he had, if he was a pro-Ukrainian and he were kidnapped and killed for merely sharing his opinions and experiences, I would oppose that, right? I mean, that's the point, is that he should not have been kidnapped and killed. And I think the other thing that this is going to expose, and they actually cover this in a statement. You can read the statement for yourself. Go to MFA Russia on Twitter. That's like the second tweet down. I retweeted it. And you can find the full statement and read it for yourself. And... uh but I think the other thing this is going to expose is how disgusting our media is. Truly disgusting. Because I think the simple truth is that he shouldn't have been killed and kidnapped for his opinions. And I'm sure a lot of people who should know better, members of the press, are going to come out and be, well, he deserved it, basically. They may not come out and say he deserved it, but they'll imply he deserved it. You know, they'll call him a a Putin stooge or whatever. Yeah, go ahead, Ron. Yeah, the the, the only thing I wanted to interject is I think that's the reason that MSNBC or whoever sent Malcolm Nance over there, because then it kind of overshadows... I mean, not to us and people who are, who are actually paying attention to the details and what's been going on over there, but to the general public, like, oh, look, there's an American that went over there and he's fighting with the Ukrainians and he's he's associated with MSNBC, so they're focusing on this uh, clown show instead of someone like Gonzalo who's actually on the ground doing righteous work. Yes, and 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 the what he's reporting is secondary to the fact that he was he's missing. And likely kidnapped and killed for his beliefs, for free speech, a literal free speech martyr. And uh, let me also point out the news headline that came out this morning. The Russian Ministry of Defense says that Mariupol has been liberated. You saw that, Rod, right? Yes. Yeah, I saw that uh, Putin wanted to hold back the last strikes on that. He said he wanted, you know, he didn't he didn't think he deserved that much casualties. He just wants to let the people come out of there, out of that um, Azotov, I believe it's called, that steel factory or whatever. Yes. So, yeah, I did, I did see that in the morning. And then the media is kind of portraying it the opposite. Like, this, they're saying this is the Alamo, this is the last stand. And if you, if you look at the uh, Russian media, they're kind of like, okay, you know, this is the end. And I also saw reports yesterday that uh, Putin wanted this wrapped up by the beginning of May, so it, it's starting to look that way. And you're right. They they are reporting differently. They're reporting that 100,000 people are trapped in Mariupol. Actually, 100,000 people are liberated from the Nazis, the murderous Nazis. I, I want to point out something. What I'd like to point out that the Azov Battalion and the other Banderites, the followers of Stefan Bandera, are Ukrainian Nazis. That's their ideology. But also their temperament is their vicious, violent sadists. 
And they also get that from Stefan Bandera, who was a vicious, violent sadist who used to nail babies to trees in World War II. Now, and, and I saw somebody say they're like the Taliban, but not as bad. Whoever said that doesn't know the Ukrainian Nazis. Going back, look, there's a Polish website that details the atrocities against Poles in World War II. And I'm saying that the Banderite followers, including Azov, they adopted not only the ideology about racial purity and so on, but also the vicious sadism. And they've applied it to citizens and other people and the ca- and the captors. And, and I want to get to Ingrid first, then I want to read this. Go ahead. 202-521-1320. Ingrid, what's on your mind? Well, unless, unless it's a, a fake, uh, like more than 10 hours ago, Gonzalo tweeted today. Um, he's got a new account. Sorry, I can't remember, but it's it's a different account, something like Real 01 Lira or Lira 01 Real, whatever. And he said he was alive. He had gotten out of uh, Kharkov and he would fill in soon. So it it looks like a real account. I mean, who knows? And um, which is wonderful if this is right. And the other thing is, as far as what Putin said today about Azovstal, uh, what he said was he didn't want to lose any more of Russian soldiers' wives and to seal it off, close all the entrances, not let anybody escape. And that was that. Don't bother to go into the tunnels and risk any more Russian lives. Yeah, I can can see that. And uh, and thanks for that clarification, Ingrid. I I hadn't seen... Hey, Rod, have you seen this supposed Gonzalo Lira account? Uh, no, as of now, I, I haven't seen that. Um, I'll, I'll be on the lookout for it, see if it, it, maybe there's some, uh, maybe it's real or not. But uh, as of as of about an hour ago, I'd still seen people that uh, I know. Eva Bartlett had been in contact with him on WhatsApp, and she never, she hasn't received any uh, information from him. So, yeah. So I'll check it out though. Yeah, and if someone put a fake account up, even if they mean well, I I don't. Don't do that. Uh, And also, Gonzalo, when I was in the hospital with my last stroke, I posted a video very early on. And that's because I want people to see that and see, hear my voice, what had happened to me. This Gonzalo account, Gonzalo's got to know that just a text from him is insufficient. A picture, anything. A short video clip, which are hard to upload sometimes, but a picture is pretty easy to upload. I think we know that. And the point is, to me, 
the reaction to this shows I I hope Gonzalo's alive. I hope fervently hope that. But the reaction by some people will still get you. Let me read the statement. This is coming from MFA Russia and the Telegram account. And I will read it. Gonzalo Lira, a video blogger, author, and famous film director, and citizen of Chile and the United States, has not been in contact since April 15th, after he went missing in Kharkov. It was where the action was, actively connecting on events in Ukraine first in Kiev and later in Kharkov. He honestly and professionally reported about the act, the causes of the crisis and the ongoing outrages, including the Nazis' atrocities. He was outspoken, this is me talking, parenthetically, he was outspoken about Buka, which he thought, as I do, but he is in bad position since he is there, was an atrocity committed by the Ukrainians. So that's the reverser. Going back to the statement. His video reports have helped many people in the West see the truth. The far-right radicals hated what he did and he started receiving threats. Now, I'm going to say, let me just say something. Breaking away from the statement. The term far-right is problematic because right now in the news, Marine Le Pen is far-right. Tucker Carlson my girlfriend pointed this out, is often described as far right. Have you heard that, Ron? Yeah, and Glenn Greenwald is now far right. So, you know, anybody who doesn't agree with the establishment is far right. No, I agree. And calling the Azov Battalion far right in some senses is correct because they are Nazis. But they are in defense supporting neoliberalism. Right? Zelensky is obviously a neoliberal in the sense we talked about yesterday with Daniel Lazar. And that's true too. So I so I'm being nitpicky. But do you see what I mean about saying the far right hated him. Here in this country, a lot of people who were on, in fact, I'm sure Gonzalo, I have to check, but in a Daily Beast hit piece, I'm sure he was described as far right. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I believe I believe that's true. And uh, yeah, it, it does make sense what you're saying, Lee. And I think here in America, I think the what you would, 
we consider the right, or me and you and I or anybody else listening, would, would as far as conservatives or libertarians, I think he would be celebrated. So that I understand what the confusion would be for um, coming from Russia and people reading it that way. Right, and 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 so I, I just as nitpicky, but I wanted to point that out. Now I'm reading from the statement: the liberal queers and honest Western journalists which is often one and the same, echoed the neo-Nazis' threats. And we'll explain that statement in a sec. The statement itself explains that statement. And now these members of the public, that's in quotes, are merrily discussing Gonzalo's disappearance. and are openly threatening their colleagues who dare to speak out openly about the events in Ukraine without mincing words. So that statement about liberal queers is explained by this next paragraph. Patrick Lancaster, you next said a transgender journalist from Las Vegas who is reporting from Kharkov and often seen taking photos with the thugs from the so-called territorial defense forces. Now, do you know who they're talking about there, Rod? You mean Patrick Lancaster? No, Patrick Lancaster we've talked about. He's a great video journalist. Oh, you mean the media? The media. The, the trans. The trans. Oh no! Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the that's the person I was telling you about that was coming after uh, Gonzalo. There's screenshots of it. Um. So yeah, no, I, I know that person. I know that person by face. I don't really know their name offhand, but I know them by face. Now, now, do you have a name on them? Uh, I can find it, and we, and we can. I can uh, say it on air. I can get it for you. But yeah, that's how, that's why I was telling you yesterday or uh, Monday that um that that's what I was seeing. That was one of the people that was targeting Gonzalo, and along with other 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 people on the ground in, in Ukraine, they were attacking his work, and that they wanted him to be captured. So uh, that that that's it, it's. I, I missed that. I, I missed that part, but it's uh, it's good that you um that you and brought it up. She's straight. Well, the statement brings it up. And I'm glad Russia, God bless them. I'm glad the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, I've been nitpicky about the far right statement and explaining it. But uh, I'm, I'm really glad they did this. Then they go on to say they're doing their best to cancel and cross out those who disagree with them. And the fact that that transgender person, Threaten Patrick Lancaster says it all and says, Patrick Lancaster, you're dead, basically. Basically, you're next. For reporting, they can't answer, but they make that statement. Here, I got, then, the, I got, the, name, I got the name for you, Lee. Um, previous, previously known as Michael John Cirillo. And now is Sarah Ashton Cirillo. Okay. 
So that's the name of the person. Now, Sergey, I, I, I'm not going to pronounce this. Sergey Karatkich, a.k.a. That's the guy, Bossman. You've heard of Bossman, right? The Bossman Brigade? Yep, fair enough. Okay, that guy, a chieftain of the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion, has hinted that his neo-Nazi confederates could be involved in Gonzalo's disappearance. Quote, It is ironic that Gonzalo Lira, a Chilean, has been captured by a man whose nickname is Chile. Anyway, hope you see a beheading video on Telegram soon. That's what Botsman said. Hope you see a beheading video on Telegram soon. How do you like that? Incidentally, Chile's one of those who murdered and tortured Russian servicemen. So he's one of the ones involved in those atrocities. That even the New York Times said was true. This tweet has been deleted, but Lear is a U.S. citizen, and nothing can be deleted from the Internet without leaving a trace. This is fresh proof that the cannibalistic liberals' logic is so closely interconnected with the Nazi ideology that it is sometimes impossible to tell which is which. This is indicative. Now, that's a very important point. And we're throughout the show today going to talk about that. As I said, the Nazis are in defense of neoliberalism and globalism. Zelensky was spoken at being introduced by Klaus Schwab and spoken at the World Economic Forum. He's a globalist, clearly. And these neo-Nazis are defending his regime, and it's among the contradictions. But part of it is this ideology, the woke ideology, is very close. They they don't, you know, I was talking to my girlfriend last night, and I was saying, let me ask you a question, Rod. Do you think Black Lives Matter people People who are actual Black Lives Matter advocates support Hillary Clinton. No. Right. If you ask them, a lot of them hate Hillary Clinton. But in fact, they support Hillary Clinton. You see what I'm saying? In, in fact, they do. They support her. And... They support her not by explicitly supporting her. You know, I was talking about this uh, with her last night with my girlfriend. And uh, another example is critical race theory. A lot of Republicans 
think that Democrats, members of the Democrat Party, the grassroots Democrats, sit around talking about critical race theory. Do you think the average Democrat knows anything about critical race theory? No, I, I wouldn't think that they're that deep in the woods of it. They think critical race theory is something crazy that conservatives talk about or people on Fox News, right? Am I right? That's what they think. Yeah, no, they don't. Like, like you said, they don't. They're not really deep in the woods of it. Like you said, they would take what the media is saying and say that you know they don't want to learn about race or history here in America. They don't have a, a grasp on what it really is. That's right. And as soon as they hear it's being discussed on Fox News, they talk about it as a conspiracy theory. We Ingrid said yesterday that she has friends who the existence of the Azov Battalion is a conspiracy theory. This is very dangerous, and it's partially because of the twisted logic they fold into one another. The Nazi ideology and the woke ideology that claims to hate Nazis but defines Nazi as Sucker Carlson. You see what I'm saying? Trump supporters are neo-Nazis. They, when the Azov Battalion has actual connections to people who worked with the Nazis in World War II, they worship Stefan Bandera, who worked the and the OUNB. They carry the blood and soil flag. They don't connect to Nazis who are real Nazis, but call Trump supporter a Nazi. And and that's one other point. Let me just make this, and I may bring it up later. You saw Tulsi Gabbard and uh, Tarif call back at the top of the next hour. I wanted to get through the segment. And there's not going to be time. So call back at the top of the hour. Um, you saw Tulsi Gabbard suing Mitt Romney or threatening to. She just issued a cease and desist letter against Mitt Romney and Keith Oberman, right? Yeah, I saw that. And I uh, hope she follows through with it. Yes. They called her treasonous and a Russian asset. I, I get Feel free to reach out to Tulsi. I guarantee you Tulsi wouldn't appear on Sputnik. Do you think she would? I think if we spoke to her in person, she would definitely have a conversation, but she wouldn't come on air. Right. That's what I'm saying. That's how not a Russian asset she is. And they called her treasonous, and she points out treason has a meaning. It's a crime defined in the Constitution. And the penalty is death. And to call Tulsi Gabbard treasonous for saying that she thinks a war with Russia would be dangerous, she's not even a full-throated Putin defender. And I, I think, I really do, I think a lot of people aren't full-throated Putin defenders because they've been scared into not looking into it. They've been Scared, don't question narrative that Putin kills his enemies. Don't question that. So don't look into the Livinenko case. Here's a end of the statement. I'm reading now. P.S. 
We sincerely hope the media mayhem raised by Azov Nazis. Hang on. And Western propagandists is nothing more than theatrics, and that Gonzalo and his family are all well. So there's a the MFA making a statement that they hope Gonzalo's okay, but they said so much important stuff in there that I felt it was important to read it. Rod, you think this is a big deal? Regardless of what happens to Gonzalo. Oh no, most definitely. Because, um, like, uh, like we said, you know, we're, we're kind of, you know, the days keep going. So the hope, the hope that he's alive is fading away. But I think this is a huge, huge deal. And like I said, that person, uh, Sarah, I forgot his last name. I already said that who was targeting him. I think I think they should be an investigation. If if that person's in Las Vegas, they should be investigated by. Uh, some type of agency for putting out a threat on another American and getting him captured. Right. And, and, and hopefully Patrick Lancaster stays safe. I saw some footage of he's in the trenches and under shelling in Ukraine. And I noticed the date. It was amazing footage. Absolutely harrowing. It's from five years ago. Anyone who thinks that Russia started this doesn't know what's going on in Ukraine. And I'll point this out time and time again. When there's shelling going on for eight years and civilians murdered, none of the people getting the vapors over civilian deaths now cared about one single one of those civilian deaths in the past. And they don't care. Show you care about civilians. Gonzalo Lira is as innocent as any eight-year-old. And he was targeted. He was targeted. He was not killed as a result of a, a, an errant missile or whatever. He was targeted. And it's a huge story. And we plan on not dropping it. That's what we do at the backstory. And check out the statement of MFA Russia for yourself. Now, coming up next, friend of the show, Susan Pye, immigration attorney and expert, talking about why Ukrainians are at the southern border. That's next on Backstory. back on the backstory and we are on 105.5 FM AM 1390 in Washington DC and we'll get get to Susan Pye immigration attorney and expert in just one second but Rod I'm gonna you you know sometimes you do meetings on the air so I had an idea last night for a new segment on the show that we're gonna put on Wednesdays and I thought I'd tell you about it on air, because, you know, we're talking. So I want to do a game show 
And the game show is going to pit Democrat versus Republican to see who knows more about the headlines in the news and the current events any given week. And does that make sense, Ron? Yeah, that makes sense. So, and actually I'm doing it for the, it's it's apparently a, a, a competition between Democrats and Republicans, but I'm doing it to take both of them off their high horses. Republicans, I ask people, what do you think Democrats think about? Issues are important to them. And some poor person gave me a list and they said, they think Democrats are focused, and I mean grassroots Democrats, on putting critical race theory into schools. You're stupid. If you think grassroots Democrats, do you know, I'll, I'll tell you the perfect example of this. Saul Alinsky. Saul Alinsky, of course, labor organizer on the left and author, but famous in the 60s. Saul Alinsky is a person of the left. Rod, who do you think knows more about Saul Alinsky, Democrats or Republicans? Ooh, I would say Republicans probably know more about him. I'm telling you, when I was a Democrat, I knew nothing about Saul Alinsky. I'd heard the name, and I wanted to read him. He was on my I'll get to it list. But they don't know anything about him. Don't think that grassroots Democrats know stuff. In fact, we've seen this with John Kiriakou, my old co-host. When the Hunter Biden laptop story first came up, and John, to his credit, changed his opinion on it. But do you remember what happened when I first brought it up when John was first co-hosting, Rod? Do you remember what happened when I brought up the Hunter Biden laptop story with John, who's very smart, knows news? Remember what happened? Yeah, yeah, he thought it was a Republican. Um, uh, I forgot the exact word to use, but he thought it was a Republican narrative to, uh, to, to you know, from keep Joe Biden from the White House. Right, and the last time we talked about it, he still he accepts the story as real, but doesn't, but thinks just about Hunter Biden, and not about Joe Biden. But let me bring on Susan Pye. Susan Pye is an immigration attorney and a smart cookie. Don't hold that against her. Hey, Susan, how are you doing? Hi, Lee. How are you? I'm okay. Uh, so, Susan, let me ask you, do you know any Democrats? Lots. <laughs> right. And I say that because last I checked, Susan was a Democrat. I don't know if that's changed. She was starting to have some trouble with the the party. So, but oh, I'm but, I'm a Democrat. Yep. Yeah, and so if let's let's talk about the topic at hand. I was talking about critical race theory and Saul Alinsky. But when it comes to immigration as an issue, do you think most Democrats under actually even understand it? 
not have the right position. But do they put a lot of it down to, well, that's a Fox News conspiracy theory? Well, I think that actually most Americans, whether they're Democrat or Republican or independent, don't understand the immigration system. Our immigration system of laws is based on a decades-old act, you know, that was passed, some of it in reflection and consistent with international uh, agreements that we've signed on to. For example, the the law that applies to asylum seekers. So I, I like when they... Anybody, Democrat or Republican, refers to the people at the border as, you know, illegal uh, migrants. Um, that's not actually accurate because they're making if they make a claim for asylum, you know, that's their legal right, both under international law and under our own law. So I think if people have a problem with asylum or, you know, our capacity to uh, to allow um, so many asylees into our country, because, of course, you know, all that want to come here can't, you know, won't be able to come here. So um, they need to go back to the original laws that grant the power to um, people to claim asylum at the border. Now, you'd agree. You, you do think the asylum system is being misused by many people at the border. Do you think that? Well, I think the numbers, just the bare naked numbers, there's this uh, uh, uh University out of New York that keeps track of the statistics. And if you look at the amount of people who are allowed in the country while they're waiting for their asylum claim to be adjudicated by an immigration judge, um, and there are only 500 of them in the United States, and our immigration case backlog is 1.5 million. So if they're waiting for their case to be adjudicated in immigration court, they'd be waiting five, six, seven, eight, sometimes nine or 10 years. Um, so let's say that 80% of the people are let in at the border to make their asylum case, but only 20% or 10% or 5% ultimately win their asylum claim. You can see, you know, where the problem is. Right. The bottleneck is in there. They're, they're, they found a, a hole in the system in a sense. Uh, is that it? They found something they can exploit in the letter of the law. I think I think asylum seekers, yes, and I don't think that they necessarily understand the system either. Um, but they basically are gaining a prolonged legal status because while your asylum case is pending, even if it's for five or nine years, uh, you have legal status. You can legally work. You can get a social security card, driver's license, and everything. So ultimately, if they're you know if they've been here for nine years and ultimately they lose their asylum case, it's highly unlikely that they'll actually be removed from the country by force at that point. And it's not just the asylum lawyers who are kind of exploiting a broken system. It's also the immigration lawyers because immigration lawyers some you know will file what they think are not strong or maybe even frivolous asylum claims, knowing that they're buying their client, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine years uh, with legal status in the country. Right. And so they're serving their clients in a sense. They're doing what lawyers in theory should do. Uh, but we're, we're not supposed to file frivolous asylum cases. That's for sure. So I, I think I've told you many times before, I only do one or two a year. But I know lawyers who do, you know, hundreds in one month. And they would argue that they their cases aren't frivolous and they give some gobbledygook excuse, right? Well, I just 
statistics. And, and the statistics say that, you know, say out of 100 people who are allowed in with credible fear claims at the border, only 20% of them ultimately prevail on their case. So, you know, the, the statistics are what define, you know, how the system is working or not working. Now, there's another controversy currently because the Biden administration is letting title, is it 42? Yes, uh-huh. They're letting title 42 laps. We have a clip about that. Let's play the clip, shall we? No, what I'm considering is continuing to hear from my uh, my. Uh, first of all, there's going to be an appeal by the Justice Department because, as a matter of principle, we want to be able to be in a position where, if in fact it is strongly concluded by the scientists that we need Title 42, that we'd be able to do that. But there has been no decision on extending Title 42. Thank you. Now, Title 42, what does that deal with? So Title 42 is a health initiative um, formed by the um, by uh, Walensky at the CDC and saying that as a public health measure, we're not going to allow asylum seekers into the country. In, in other words, we're not going to allow them to even make the asylum claim before we return them to their home countries. But that clip that you just played of Biden, he it was very unfortunate because he was confusing the mask mandate on airplanes, that appeal, with the Title 42 expulsions at the border, which are two separate issues. But he clearly made a mistake. Now, uh, and, and par for the course for Biden. But uh, what is going to be the effect? Because I've talked to Mark Corian from Center for Immigration Studies. Is not a conspiracy theory. There's a real explosion of cases at the southern border, right? Yes. Like they had 221,000 encounters, I believe, in March, which is a I believe it's a 20-year record, and they're planning for up to 500,000 encounters a month once Title 42 is lifted. And even though the administration has allocated over a billion dollars in extra funds, you know, for the border, it's clearly not enough to cover the anticipated increase in encounters after Title 42 is lifted. And what's the result going to be? of people coming in, what can we expect by the end of the year, R roughly? What's the estimate? I mean, they're estimating up to 500,000 encounters per month, you know, which is, of course, millions, you know, in, in a fiscal year. Um, and so what they, they've tried to do a couple different things. They've written a new rule that goes into effect about the same time that Title 42 is to be lifted, the end of May. And it's where they're surging resources and also asylum officers, although the estimate of asylum officers that they're surging to the border is anywhere from 800 to 5,000, which is, you know, a huge, um, a broad number of, that you can't that they're not really quantifying um, into manageable figures. And then they are also starting a Ukrainian uh, program called Uniting for Ukraine for Ukrainians to have a direct path to apply for refugee or asylum status in the United States from wherever they are, instead of them flying into Mexico and appearing at the border. So um, so what is going to happen? You know, it's, it's hard to say because 
certainly lifting Title 42 is going to increase the number of encounters at the border, although it's going to be mitigated by repeat offenders if the administration chooses to prosecute um, what we call like uh, illegal re-entry uh, people, so people who have been deported from the border before and then they attempt to illegally enter again, they can actually be criminally prosecuted and receive a prison sentence of two years. Or if they've been deported because of, like, for example, a felony or three misdemeanors, they can actually be imprisoned for up to 10 years. So there's a variety of push and pull factors that are going to be in play, but the administration has certainly not laid out any kind of comprehensive plan to, um, you know, other than surging personnel at the border. And by the way, the asylum officers, even if they did um, increase the asylum officers at the border to 5,000, which is their maximum figure, um, if the if the asylum officer denies the credible fear of the asylum applicant, they it automatically gets uh, tossed to immigration court. So you're back with 500 immigration judges with a 1.5 million case log backlog. Now, what are we looking at? Explain the the Ukrainian thing. Is it? Do I understand that Ukrainians are actually to get into the country, going to Mexico, and the border is so porous, they realize that's a short line. That's the express line. To get into the country. Is that happening? Yes, but starting on Monday, that will change because they'll have a special program set up just for them where they can apply directly from um, wherever they are, much like similar to what we have for the Afghan refugees um, filing for humanitarian parole. But um, before this program was envisioned or put in, uh, planned to be put in pe place, yes, they were Ukrainians were coming to the United States either on a visitor visa or they were flying into Mexico to come through the border. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any idea how they're—I'm going to ask you an obvious question you might not know the answer to. But how are they getting—they're just flying commercial to Mexico? Yeah, yes. Wow, that's amazing. And is it concerning to the U.S. that the Mexican border is so porous that it's used as an express lane by people, and not just Ukrainians? We've seen people of other nationalities using the Mexican border. They can't deny the crisis at the border anymore, but I'm sure they do. Whatever your political affiliation is, nobody can deny that our immigration system is profoundly broken, and in particular, our asylum system. And the, just by the raw numbers, you know, although um, X number of people might have valid asylum claims, we don't have the capacity anymore to host and to uh, accept those people as um, citizens to this country. So something, and it's not just a problem that's unique to the United States, it's happening all over the world with, you know, growing diasporas in different countries continuing continuing on, seeming ad infinitum. Now, do you think, because I, I say that I don't see how it avoids being a political issue in 2024. With 500,000 people coming into the country per month, that's 6 million a year. That's going to have a profound effect. Why? What do you think of a, a, a state like Texas? Greg Abbott famously busts people 
to Washington, D.C. voluntarily, and not many took them up on it. But what are the costs to a state like Texas to all these people coming in? Where do they accrue costs? I mean, I think in their in their infrastructure, in you know, hosting the in the um, asylees, you know, in their states, and in increased law enforcement costs. Um, you know, private shelters or NGOs can only do so much to take up the slack. So I do think that the border states are being you know unfairly burdened, and I mean, the cost is everywhere. So the other problem with asylees is they're not supposed to work until uh, a, about a year has passed, or in some cases, half a year. And so there's the, it also encourages, obviously, um, undocumented workers, you know, to continue to work because they don't give them a, a legal way to work, even though they let them in the country. No, right. And do you see any way to avoid this as a political problem for the Democrats in 2024? Because I don't see how this could not be a political problem. It starts with something that affects people's day-to-day lives because they see it. And it, maybe not, maybe if you're in in Fargo, North Dakota, you're not seeing it. But people in Texas are actually seeing the effects of this, right? I Well, actually, I think people in every state see the effects of this because, you know, the asylees don't stay necessarily in the border states. They you generally will move to wherever they have contacts like um, other family members or um, you know, things like our friends in the United States. So um, is there a way to avoid this as a political issue? No, I think this is this, this one of the top three, you know, issues that are going to be uh, on people's minds in 2022 and 2024. And, you know, but there's, it's such a huge problem and it's based in the broken um, legal system and international agreements that you have to go all the way back to legislating and actually changing the law in order to change the situation. If anything else that you do um, besides changing the the actual law is just going to be a Band-Aid or it's just going to be moving the chess pieces around the the board. Now, that brings me to, I'm going to put you on the spot here, Susan. What would you do? If you were made immigration czar or something like that, and you could do anything you wanted, what are things you think would be effective in stopping this crisis? Well, I think it has to do with the United States' role in destabilizing other countries' societies, economies, political landscape. So, you know, the pull factor is as a result sometimes of actions that the United States has taken in the countries from which we see asylees. I'm not well-versed enough in all the intricacies of United States actions in destabilizing other governments in order to comment, you know, intelligently on that. But I I do know that, you know, that is a big part of it at, at the foundation. And then just as a general matter, there are so many procedural things if you think about just the numbers, we have a 1.5 million case backlog of immigration cases, and we have 500 immigration judges. Obviously, those numbers don't work, and and you can increase the number of asylum officers to 5,000, but every case that that asylum officer denies 
just gets kicked back to immigration court. So the system is basically where everything gets kicked to immigration court, the case backlog increases, and then the person is here while their their case is pending, they have legal status in the country. So first and foremost, we need to solve the case backlog problem from a, just from a procedural practical standpoint. And how would you do that? Again, assuming you do anything you want, because uh, do you deputize more judges on temporary basis or something? Because uh, I don't, there's two ways you could, you could ease that backlog. Number one, reduce the number of cases, or number two, increase the number of judges, it seems to me. Those are the options. So what would you do? I, you know, I wonder if there's a way to just create an asylum adjudicatory system where there's an asylum court separate from regular immigration courts. And, you know, you could staff up the asylum courts, not just with, uh, you know, uh, line, the line supervisors of asylum cases, but with um administrative judges like we have in immigration court. And then they'd have to set something up like a rocket docket, like what we did years ago for foreclosures, right? And um, and then have those cases adjudicated at the border. So, But there are lots of other things that are sort of simple things that people don't realize are, is going on. So for example, you're less likely to be turned away and you're more likely to be let in the United States if you are a single male with a child. But a child is defined as anybody under under 18 years old. So it could be a 17-year-old. And so there are a lot of people who are coming over with fake birth certificates of 17, 16-year-old kids that they meet along the way. So one thing you could do is you could keep them in custody um, as long as it's under 20 days until you do a DNA test result, you know, to prove the relationship between the supposed father and son or mother and daughter, because a lot of them are not related. So I, I really don't understand why things like this are not done already. Well, let me posit a theory. I think a lot of people involved in the immigration system, and I'd like you you can verify this or disagree don't want to solve the problems. I think they've learned to work within the system. And a lot of people involved, the legislatures and the lawyers, and as you point out, immigration lawyers get paid by people. And I, I would assume this has been a boom in clients for many immigration lawyers. Yeah, immigration lawyers typically charge between five and ten thousand dollars, you know, for an asylum case, and which is ironically about the same that a human smuggler charges, you know, somebody to smuggle them to the border. So it's it's definitely big business. I think from a political standpoint, it's just too much of a hot topic issue, and it's just it the whole system is just so utterly and profoundly broken that nobody wants to begin tackling it. Um, there were people in the past like Jared Polis. I mean, I think that uh, he had um, he was very genuine and authentic in his desire to reform the immigration system. But those kinds of politicians are few and far between. I think it's just too big of a problem for people to ease to handle within the cycle of their um, re-election bid. Now, Susan, I know you're busy, you know, with life and being an attorney. But have you been writing anything about this? No, I, you know, as you know, um, because you know, um, I sought a lot of guidance from you, um, you know, I used to write a lot about the broken immigration system, and I still have all of the historic writings 
uh, on my website, which is um, strongvisa.com. So people can kind of look and see historically. Strongvisa.com. That's it. Yes. Susan Pye, thank you so much. Love you, Miss Sagia. I love Susan. Uh, Susan's a good friend. I've known her for years. And it was a pleasure and an honor to have her on the show. This has been the first hour of the backstory. from the Empire of Lies and just outside the Matrix. It's time for the second hour of the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm investigative journalist Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. Thanks again to Susan Pye. She knows a lot about immigration and is a very fair-minded person, so we always love having Susan on the show. And there's a big crisis at the border. And it's not being dealt with, so it's going to be an issue. Coming up this hour, first off, Carter Laren is joining us as our guest co-host. Hey, Carter, how you doing? Carter's not picking up. He's, he's not picking Wait. up. Wait, okay. Well, how are you doing, Rod? <laughs> I'm doing all right, Lee. Okay, good. Just had to find out how someone was doing. Then our guest is Taylor Hudak later on in the hour talking about the awful, and it relates to Gonzalo Lira in a sense, awful extradition decision made in England on Julian Assange yesterday. Taylor Hudak, I believe, was there. Is that correct, Rod? I'm not 100 percent sure of that. We can ask her though, but I don't believe I believe she's still in uh, she's in America. Okay, but she is really tuned into this issue, has been an important advocate for Julian Assange for years, and is now doing work as a journalist and doing important work there. But that's all this hour and 202-521-3020. Tarif, you can call back in. Sorry we didn't get to you last time on the backstory. And do we have Sharif there? Okay. He's not there. He's with Carter Laren somewhere. I don't know. But Sharif, uh, I assume, will call back in. Anyone can call back in. 202-521-1320. This, let me relate it again to the Assange thing. The Gonzalo Lera story I don't believe the U.S. I am so ashamed of my country right now. If they're letting what's happening to Julian Assange happen, and in fact causing it, working to get him extradited, and no one's ending it. And by the way, Tulsi Gabbard, who we talked about a little last hour, she's suing Mitt Romney or threatening with a cease and desist letter. 
She's one of the few politicians who speaks out on Julian Assange. And I think that's part of why they target her. And let me let me say this about Tulsi. Uh, Rod, I think I see a lot of people, especially on the right, I don't think nearly enough people give Tulsi Gabbard credit. And I'll put it like this. Just look at look at it on paper. Compare Tulsi Gabbard with Donald Trump. And anything you can bring up negative about Tulsi Gabbard, you practically could bring up. You say, well, she's a Democrat. Well, Trump was too. And furthermore, Jared Kushner's father, Charles Kushner, was one of the biggest contributors to Democrats in New Jersey. Kushner and Ivanka are lifelong Democrats. I'll put it like this. Tulsi Gabbard's best friends are not whom Aberdeen and Chelsea Clinton. Rod, who's that? That's uh, Ivanka. No, yeah, Ivanka. That's Donald Trump's that, father. That's it. Ivanka Trump. And Donald Trump is her father. You can love your daughter, fine. Love her, but don't have her in the freaking White House. Don't have her in the White House. Someone who's warning, whose best friends are Chelsea Clinton and Huma Abedin, both closely associated with Hillary Clinton and possibly, I, I was going to make a bizarre joke, but I was going to say they have an association with Hillary Clinton's private parts, but that might confuse some people. I'm saying when you're born, you know where you come out. I'm just saying who may have gone in that way. You see what I'm saying, Rod? Yeah, there was reports, and I guess they're confirmed, right, that um, that Hillary, I mean, that Huma sleeps in the same room, at least, with Hillary when they yes. go on trips and stuff. So yes. that's kind of weird, and she's been working with her since she was 18, right? And there's the the audio clip that I have to play sometime of Huma Abedin's reaction when she first saw Hillary Clinton. And it's very touching in a rom-com kind of way. But it's, you have to hear it, because me describing it will only give you so much of a sense of how weird Huma's statement sounds. But now I know what many of you are saying. How could Huma Abedin, who has such a strong marriage to Anthony Weiner, possibly be into anyone else? Right, Rod, that's what you were about to say, correct? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> and, and and so, so I don't, th- I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't believe, I don't believe that marriage is a. Uh, there's any love there. I believe that's a marriage of convenience for political purposes. As far as uh, who may be Anthony Weiner. This is a conspiracy, conspiracy lesbian rumor. This is, and by the way, it no one has come out and said, and I don't expect them to. Yes, whom and I get it on. No one has said that. 
but there's circumstantial evidence where I happen to believe it's true, and I wouldn't testify it in a court of law. But from what I've seen, I I think there's some implications. And also, did you ever see the Anthony Weiner documentary about him running for mayor? Oh, yeah, of course. I, I think I saw it within the first week it came out. I saw it before that. I saw it at Sundance when it premiered. Did you, and I defy anyone, did you see any hint that Huma and Anthony Weiner were in love? You know what I mean? Couples usually, you can tell their hints. There's body language. You know, putting your hand on her hand or whatever. Did you see any of that, any affection at all, anywhere in that movie? No, not at all. Anthony Weiner, he's a weird guy, but uh, no, I didn't I didn't see any of that. Huma kind of looked at him kind of like, uh, how do I put it, kind of like that, that guy I guess I got to be with for now. She just looked at him as an inconvenience that, that she had to be with him. That's how it seemed to me, especially when uh, all the uh, legal stuff started coming up with him uh, cheating and all that. Yes. Now, Anthony Weiner clearly is into chicks. A little too much. But, so, so if I say about Anthony Weiner, what's wrong with saying about Huma Aberdeen? I don't know, but I said... I, I will label it a conspiracy lesbian theory because I have no for firm, no pun intended, I have no firm proof of it. But I don't think what you have to have is a statement from Hillary or Huma. And do you remember that Bill Clinton officiated at Huma and Anthony Weiner's wedding? Remember that, Rod? Yeah. Yeah, which just makes it more weird, the whole thing. Yeah. I'll bet you didn't know Bill Clinton was able to do weddings. If you're looking to get married and you don't want to do it in Reno or Vegas, as I've done, both, I've, I've been married both in Reno and Vegas. I'll put it like that. That's how committed I am to Las Vegas weddings. My first marriage, you see why it worked out so well. My first wedding was in Reno, and my second one was in Vegas. That's how much I like it. They're almost drive-through weddings. I didn't have to go through the long planning a wedding and making a guest list and figuring out whether people would be eating chicken or fish. I didn't do that. I was married in Reno and Vegas. But I didn't know that I could have hired Bill Clinton. You know how in Vegas they have the Elvis Chapel? I did not get married at the Elvis Chapel, by the way. But you know how they have, you can be married by an Elvis impersonator in Vegas? Have you seen that, Rod? <laughs> yeah, I've seen that. They should have a Bill Clinton impersonator. I think that would work. I didn't know you could get married by Bill Clinton. Command Central, what'd you say who we have online? Okay, let's go to 
Tarif, thanks for patiently waiting. Tarif, 202-521-1320. Tarif, what's on your mind? Thank you, gentlemen, for taking my call. I have four comments. First comment, excuse me, first I'd like to say free joining signs. Um, my first comment, uh, I was listening to Duran today. They was talking about that uh, tweet that was came out today. They don't think that's him because um, uh, Gonzalo would have responded to them privately through emails. He would have contacted them if he was all right, but they didn't, see, they didn't receive no emails, so they, they're very skeptical of that account, that um, Gonzalo Lero 01 account. They're very skeptical of that account. A second um, comment, I have two after this, two more after this. And that... By the way, that means a lot. That means a lot to me. It's a logical conclusion for Alexander McCorris, and this goes with what I said. I I just think about what I would do were I Gonzalo Lara. I would show a picture or something showing proof of life, and I would definitely respond to people. Scott Ritter, Eva Bartlett, the Duran. People I knew, uh, or George Galloway, I would send a message to any of those people before I did a public message. But good, good point, Tarif. Thanks for bringing that up. Okay, on to point two. Point two. It seems like the Russian um, SBA intelligence service was the ones pumping out the four stories about generals being sacked or being fried. SB, SBS, FSB, intelligence officers being. Um, you know, dubbing agents. That was that was uh, meant to throw off throw off the CIA and the Pentagon. Remember all the weeks. No, wait, because you said you may have misspoken. You said Russian. You said is that coming from Ukrainian SPU? Is that what you meant to say? I mean, okay. I, I, let me let me refer. I'm, I'm the KGB, which is the FSB. They, they was throwing out mis, misinformation, disinformation about generals being fired and Putin getting into it with people. Basically, it was lies. It was just feeding the Western media and the Western, Western intelligence to throw them off. Okay, my third comment, one more after this one. It seems like all those weapons that was being shipped to Ukraine is starting to find themselves um, in people's hands now. A video was seen of uh, somebody part of the Hamas Liberation Group, and um, the Gaza Strip used one of those missiles to shoot at an uh, Israeli plane. So the Israelis had to bring their planes back home to come up with another um, uh, document, you know, another um, way to raise war on the Palestinians now, because now it seems like the Palestinians got the hands of those anti-aircraft missiles, those man pads now. That's probably came out of Ukraine. My last comment is dealing with uh, Elon Musk. His bid, he raised his bid to four to six point five billion, of which eighteen to twenty one billion of of his money. He raised capital. He got other people to invest with him. Um, he had tweeted out, "If our Twitter bid succeeds, we will defeat the spam box or die trying." He also tweeted after that, saying, "And authenticate all real human beings." So basically, if he, if it succeeds, they're gonna find out how much is Twitter is real, and the rest is um um a um, uh, fake box. Which means they got rumors circulating on the internet that Twitter might be thirty to forty percent fake of let you know bots that are human beings. 
So that mean that's a fraud. And um, Elon Musk, if he took quite a company, he can take them to court for lying to investors. And investors could too. So we're going to see if they take that four point six, forty-six point five billion dollars, which is a lot of money. If not, they might say no. We'll see. That's it. Thank you, Lee and Rob. Thanks, Thanks Drew. Great call as usual. Now, speaking of Elon Musk, Rod, are you noticing, because I hear the, the buzz on Twitter, I've noticed, and Jason Goodman pointed this out last time I was on, a lot of people seem to not like Elon Musk. I don't get it. And they, they say things like, oh, he's, and the insults that they have against him, they say he's not an innovator, or I point out that he's made statements about how much he cares about the truth. Elon Musk is a person who's achieved things in his life. And some people go, no, at best he's a crony capitalist. You could be a crony capitalist all day and not accomplish. You you seen that mega factory that they built in the desert in Nevada? Rod? Yeah, I've seen that, yeah. That mega factory you can do a lot of crony capitalism. That is a new way to manufacture cars. And they pulled it off. That's beyond crony capitalism. That, that's some innovation. So the people who hate Elon Musk, they've listened to this guy, Robert Barnes. And Robert Barnes is the lawyer, you know. And... Uh, He's frequently on Alex Jones' show, although I don't think Alex should do that, but it's a long story. I've had some run-ins with Barnes. But Barnes came out and said a week ago publicly that Elon Musk is not serious about his bid for Twitter. You're an idiot, Robert, and a liar also. Let me point out, a liar and an idiot, bad combo. I but he he doesn't know anything. And is I see people repeating that. People tell me, oh Barnes they, they said Barnes is it is not serious about Twitter. I Musk is not serious about Twitter. I see nothing nothing. Rod, he's made SEC filings. Do you think whether he's gonna get it or not? that Elon Musk is serious about Twitter. No, I, I definitely think uh, Musk is serious on Twitter. I don't have a, a love or a hate for him. I'm neutral on him. Uh, I do think he's, he has a, been an innovator. And I, I understand what people say about the crony capitalism and uh, how he's able to uh, keep manufacturing these Teslas uh, based on uh, government contracts and whatnot. But, you know, the guy, like you said, he's accomplished something. You, you can't really hate on somebody if they accomplish things. I mean, what are you hating on their invention or are you hating on the man? Yeah, I know. It's just, and he's dealing in fields that government contracts would come up, transportation and space exploration and so on. So, I, it's just unfair criticism. Let's go to the phones, 202-521-1320. Owl killer, what is on your mind? The reason they don't like Elon Musk 
is because out of all those billionaires and the, the real crony capitalists, he says that we need to have a human future. And he broke down how if we don't have 2.1 kids, actually three kids, he's saying now that civilization is going to collapse. So whether he's just the antithesis to whatever the, the uh, Galian dialectic that they put out, he's saying something else. And they don't like his his pro-human future that he envisions uh, as opposed to the Bezos, the Gates, the Buffets, the um, uh, Ted Turners, th- that whole crew, the Klaus Schwab. He's on. He has the opposite worldview, and he doesn't talk. He puts stuff into motion. So that's wh- that's really where I think it comes from. And I did want to touch on two two issues. One with Tulsi Gabbard. I like her rhetoric. I like what she says. But you, you brought up all the things about uh, all the the, fr- the friendships that the, the Trumps have. She was one of the young global leaders with the World Economic Forum. Now I'll gi- I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. Uh, did she apply for that, or did they? Is that something they pick people? They, she she went to be educated by them. To my to my knowledge, her and uh, Dan Crenshaw were were both. They, they have gone to um, seminars with them. That's to my knowledge. I, I could be wrong. I don't want to slander her. And like I said, I'm not going to hold it against her. Her views may have changed, and just because you go to a class doesn't mean you subscribe to the views that somebody holds. But that that also could be something that some. If you want to say that, if you want to talk about relationships that people have had in the past or their family members have, you would have to look at that too. To be fair. Let me say this. The enemy of the good is the perfect. If you're looking for a perfect politician, and I'm picking on you, I'll kill her. But if you're looking for a perfect politician who has nothing whatsoever that you can question, good luck. Tulsi Gabbard is so far above, head and shoulders above every other politician out there in the things she said and the things she's done. And, and, you're going to wait till the end of civilization. You're going to wait for a world destroyed, but you'll be able to hold out and say, yeah, I'm a principal person. And I think it's nuts. And I, I see the same thing with Elon Musk. The people who are convincing you to distrust Tulsi Gabbard, I'm not saying until I see a reason to think she is on the side of the globalists. Until I see a reason to think she's on the side of the globals, I'm not going to use things in the past that people point out, hoping for a perfect candidate. Meanwhile, the world is really, I'll put it like this. She's an Assange advocate, explicitly an Assange advocate. So I'm supposed to, because she was in this program, and she doesn't say stuff as pro-globalist. And she's critical of regime change wars. And I'm supposed to ignore the fact that she's pro-Assange? Sorry. Sorry, I'm not I'm not at the point. But I wasn't meaning to go off a new Al killer. But it really pissed me off. People who do that are stupid. You're stupid. You're stupid. You're an idiot. If you are falling for this stuff of minor things... Tulsi Gabbard, that you, you can only say half. Hey, look at what she's doing. Look what she's saying every speech in the past few years. 
So sorry for that rant, Al, Al Killer. Go, go on. No, and I, I, I would agree with that. I, I'm just, like I said, I, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. Like I said, I like what she says. But I, I just, I, I think if, if you want to bring up other people's family associations, you would have to at least look at her or her previous association with the World Economic Forum. Like I said, I don't... Here's... Go to a, let, me, let me put... It is not family associations. Donald Trump had Ivanka Trump. Jared Kushner was his top advisor in the White House. That is not an association. That is not... He went to a speech with Jared Kushner five years ago or 10 years ago. They were in the White House making policy. That is not a family association. That is a professional appointment. Jared Kushner was... Do you agree, Al Killer? Uh, absolutely. Um, and just to move on, um, I wanted to talk about, you know, you're talking about, again, once again, the Nazis inside of Ukraine and how the left has fallen in love with them, and they, they just don't want to wrap their head around that the fact that they are not, some of them are not only... Some of the leaders are not only descendants of Nazis, but they're they actually subscribe to like Stefan Bandera and that ideology. I I think that a lot of the left they fetishize what the Nazis were able to get away with, and now they have the opportunity to actually to actually get away with you know the censoring and you know the detaining of people and you know. So they're able to do it under the cloak of we're fighting Russia. But they always they always wanted to be the people that they are now. And, you know, some of these montages going around where they're saying critical thinking or thinking for yourself or doing your own research, if, if you haven't seen some of them, um, it, all the talking heads on mainstream media. I, I, I even heard uh, Mika Brzezinski say that we're supposed to um, tell you what the, she even says that we're supposed to tell you what to think. Obviously, that was a slip. But I, I think that these people actually have this worldview that they know what's right for everybody else. And, not just, you know, with, whether it was COVID or now with this war in, in Russia, they're protecting us from ourselves from coming to our own conclusion. But they actually do. They, they don't like the uniform of the Nazi, but they like the ideology. They just it, it doesn't have to be anti-Jew. It can just be anti-conservative, anti-Christian, anti-anybody that thinks anything outside of their you know, outside of their thoughts. A great call, Al Keller. Great point. And I agree with you. And I'm sorry for yelling at you again, Al Keller. Nothing personal. 202-521-1320. Let's go to Boyle, I believe. Boyle? Yes. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. I do want to say that um, on Tulsi Gabbard, I do believe in her. I do believe that, uh, you know, she does have a lot of genuine contribution to make. And I wouldn't be, I would, I would not look against Trump running again and putting her on a ticket or anybody else putting her, putting her on a ticket, because I think there are too many good things about her. But I do think that sometimes we do have to look at the background of people because uh, what we see are very complicated. Uh, even Putin. Putin was into the young pub of the uh, CFR. But nonetheless, I believe that he is fighting against, I, I do believe that he is fighting against, uh, you know, the, the, the powers that be, the World Economic Forum, and it does appear that he's doing those things. Finally, what I really want to say is that 
<clears throat> is that um, there is something going on right now that we must look at beyond what we see. Uh, Zelensky actually told Putin, Russia, that if they go after the remnants of the people that are in Mariupol, that he doesn't want to deal. Think about that for a minute. This is a sobering moment that he wants to give up the entirety of Ukraine, not fighting anymore for a mere remnant of 1,500 to 2,000 fighters. So what does that tell you? That tells you that Zelensky is not the one negotiating. So you have fighters that are within those remnants. It is said that there are about six or seven different languages spoken with those fighters. So, so these fighters are what? British, American, Canadian, Australian, NATO fighters, NATO commanders, maybe officers. So now that's one thing. So it tells you who is who is speaking, who is saying that they don't want to they don't want to negotiate if these fighters are wiped out. That's one thing. Now let's let's look at Putin. All of a sudden, Putin was supposed to go after these guys, and then Putin says, you know, we have to look at why is Putin saying, okay, we're not going to go after them anymore. We're going to chill for a little while. So we have to look at that too. Why why is he chilling for a little while? Is he does he want to starve them out? He he officially says he doesn't want to waste Russian lives. Okay, so we got to look at that. So is that reality? Is it that he doesn't want to waste uh Russian lives? Or is it that what is Putin doing? We got to look at all these things. Is Putin who is who is pulling Putin chain? That's one thing we got to look at. Maybe Putin is want to uh, lay siege to these guys and figuring that they eventually going to give up. So these are the things we got to look at. Who is pulling Zelensky chain? I mean, it's obvious that you know. Is it? Can one believe that he truly want to give up the? In other words, he wants to continue fighting continue killing new Ukrainian for merely 1,500, 2,000 fighters, or the Europeans, the Americans, the Brits, the Australians, they are the NATO fighters and commanders and officers. They're the ones that are running this operation against Russia. That's one thing. And then when you look at Putin, what is Putin doing saying, hey, you know, let's kick back and let's see what we're going to do. We must look at those things. Is Putin playing some kind of cat and mouse game? He did say that he doesn't want he doesn't want one fly to get out of there. So we have to look at those things. Is any, I, I don't see anybody discussing those things. And I'm going to leave it at that now. Well, great call. Thanks very much for calling time. When we take a break here, we're going to take a double break and come back and talk to Taylor Hudak, the great journalist and is advocate for Julian Assange about the horrible situation with journalism in general, where journalists, I believe they use the word cannibalistic at one point in the Russian MFS statement, and I forget the context, but cannibalistic would certainly apply to journalists. Let's take a double, a double break and come back on the backstory. 
back on the back, Troy, which is on 105.5 FM, AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. Joined now by a great friend of the show, journalist Taylor Hudak. Hey, Taylor, how are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Now, where in the world are Taylor, is Taylor Hudak? Last time we were in the United States, we've talked to you before from Budapest, other places. Where are you now? And all over the place, hasn't it? Um, I'm actually in the United States still, so same place as last time. Not too exciting. No. And I thought you might have been there because I saw a tweet that seemed like you were at the hearing, but I must have misread that. So let's update people on this awful decision in the UK yesterday on Julian Assange. Right. So I was able to cover the case remotely. Only a small handful of journalists, I think, are able to gain physical access to the courtroom. So the overwhelming majority of people covering this case are doing it through a video conference link that we get from the courts. And then we sit in on this remotely, but we have a video and audio footage of what's taking place in the courtroom. But you're correct. Assange is unfortunately, one step closer to facing extradition to the United States. On Wednesday, yesterday, a U.K. judge issued the order of extradition to the United States, and this was during a hearing that was held at Westminster Magistrates Court in London. And this was a technicality, really a formality under Section 87.3 of the U.K. Extradition Act. So we knew that this was going to happen. It was something that was expected. The judge who was hearing the case yesterday actually said that he was duty-bound to send the order of extradition, in particular to the U.K. Home Secretary of State or U.K. Home Secretary Preeti Patel for final approval. So Preeti Patel can either approve or reject this extradition order. And so what's, what's the next step? And next couple steps in the Assange case. So there still is hope in this case, Lee, which is great. Fortunately, there still is a pathway to prevent extradition. Over the next four weeks, it's going to be really critical for Julian Assange. So everybody listening right now, I say this every time I come on the program, but I really mean this. Step up. Put pressure on Preeti Patel. I know many of the listeners right now are Americans, but you can send emails. If you can, you can try to make phone calls. Send letters, talk about this case on social media, of course, be respectful, but really put pressure on her and on people within the U.K. government to stop this extradition. So over the next four weeks, Assange's legal team will be submitting additional information to the home office on Assange's behalf to encourage them to prevent the extradition, and they have until May 18th to do this. And then Preeti Patel will make her decision. And then once she makes that decision, Assange is allowed to appeal her decision. So there is still an opportunity for yet another appeal. But again, this is a very slim window of opportunity to prevent this extradition. But the judge, or not the judge rather, but Assange's attorney, Mark Summers, during the court yesterday said that there is fresh developments in the case that will be submitted to the courts, but he was unable to disclose exactly what that, what those developments are. So we'll look forward to that. And hopefully it's some big deal that's going to change things. But now let me ask you this. Uh, I was ranting about Tulsi Gabbard last 
half hour because I think can you new you first let's establish this as a baseline. Can you think of many politicians and I still consider a politician who've been as much of an advocate for Julian Assange as Tulsi Gabbard? He's done a really great job advocating for his release and advocating for the charges against him to be dropped. Yes. And since she was really one of the first ones, I would say, to come forward in a very public way in condemning the U.S. government's prosecution of Assange. And I think we've seen over the past year or so more and more politicians and people within the government stand up for Assange. Sarah Palin is one of them, too, somebody on the totally different side of the political spectrum. So that's really interesting. But she has been a very vocal proponent of Assange and his release. You're right. And I'm sure you hear this. and I won't rant because it might frighten the children. But I, I ranted about it gets me furious when I see people pick on elements of Every politician has a past. I'm sure some of you geniuses out there were born whole. You were born with perfect political thoughts from the womb, spouting whatever you think the perfect political philosophy is. But some of us evolve, and some of us learn from mistakes. Have you noticed that, Taylor? Absolutely. And in We've seen that a lot. I think we talked about last time, too, that the Assange case has really become a litmus test. If you look, you know, five, ten years ago, compared to now, the support for him has really evolved and it has grown at an astronomical rate, I would say. And we do have to give people, politicians and others within the government, those opportunities to really change, to evolve and shift their perspective as they learn more information your perspective should change. I think that happens with everybody. Every open-minded person, I think, is willing to accept new information and facts and then change their opinion or perspective on, on a given situation. So people are learning more about Julian Assange and the great work that he has done, and it's shaping their perspectives, and they're taking a very strong stance in his favor. And I think that's something we should welcome, despite whatever political affiliation they may have. And I'm... And part of being open-minded is being open to negative stuff. So if Tulsi Gabbard were to manage to arrange for Julian Assange's release and she immediately put him in a cage and sent him to Klaus Schwab, I would oppose that, as I'm sure you would, because it would be weird. But my point is, as soon as I see her do something on the Assange case that is negative, I will call her out on it. But I see lots of people who are reticent to give Tulsi credit and support for what she's doing. And that's, I, I don't know, it's a form of uh, divide and conquer. It's one person divide and conquer. It's, it's, it's dividing parts of the resume with other parts of the resume and saying, well, they're not perfect, so let's criticize them. And it makes me nuts. But uh, especially when there's so few politicians who are willing to say, now, if, if you were to make a list of politicians who are bad on Assange, top of the list would be Mike Pompeo. 
I think, right? Oh, certainly. Mike Pompeo, I mean, his rhetoric really amped up the dislike for Assange within people, within the intelligence community, among people within the intelligence community, rather. And so he is definitely someone who was speaking about WikiLeaks, calling it a hostile intelligence agency. And he's also the same man, let's remember, that said that the CIA lies, cheats, and steals. That's on video. And uh, he is definitely not an advocate for free speech, human rights, or press freedoms. That is uh, certainly not the case. But I think that globally, there is a lot of support uh, for Assange among MPs in various countries. If you go to the don'textraditeassange.com website, you can see the list of different politicians who have taken a public stance in Assange's favor, as well as the organizations in very prominent organizations like Amnesty International, RSF, Penn International, that have all really condemned the U.S. government's overreach. And as the United States continues to prosecute this case, we learn more and more very ugly and ugly things about the United States and sort of how it engages with the rest of the world. You know, namely, it came to light that there were serious plans to assassinate Julian Assange. The CIA, U.S. intelligence, was planning to assassinate a journalist. This is outrageous, but this, of course, came out because of these extradition proceedings that were taking place. Yet the U.S. still continues to prosecute this man. It's quite unbelievable. It really shows the arrogance of Uh, the U.S. government. And it was, I think, Caitlin Johnstone, a journalist who pointed this out in a recent piece. And this is a very good point to be made that we see sort of the the ugly side in a different way when it comes to uh, this prosecution. We see sort of the the psychopathy that is uh, within the the psychology of many of the people that run our government. Not that we didn't already know that, but now we have more concrete evidence, given that there were serious plans to kill a journalist, for example. And and have you been following the case of Gonzalo Lira at all, Taylor? Yes, yes, I have. And I'm very, very concerned about that situation. I'm glad you bring that up as well. Yeah, because I, and let me point out the shame of being an American now. And not only is America, my government, trying to get Assange over there. But I don't think the American government will act shocked or do anything to advocate for Gonzalo Lira. Guess who did advocate for Gonzalo Lira just recently it was actually the Russian government. So here we have, in, you know, the U.S. media, the U.S. government is always wanting to point out the flaws in Russia. And it was Russia who was actually standing up for an American independent journalist. And I thought that was just so powerful. And it really shows that this uh, constant Russia phobia that's being pushed by the media is just so overblown, so outrageous. And it is the height of hypocrisy. And we've talked about this with other guests. Uh, yesterday, we had Ted Rawl and Daniel Zaron. And we talked about uh, the left, and I'm using the term broadly. I'll include anyone who's a Democrat or left. That liberals used to be advocates for Assange. But one of the effects of Russiagate was to turn a lot of Democrats now have a negative 
view of Julian Assange and they insult him as a Russian asset or whatever. But have you noticed the way public opinion changed negatively against Assange? Not that I agree, it's coming back and I, I remain hopeful. But what did you think of that, them turning Democrats against Assange? Yes. So initially, I would say early on, the very strong supporters of WikiLeaks and Julian Assange were those coming from the left. And again, what does what do the terms left and right mean anymore? That's a whole other discussion. But let's say people who are Democrats, liberals, very much supported uh, Assange early on. And then you did see that switch because they're they were brainwashed to believe that somehow Assange helped get Trump elected and was working with the Russian government, which is a complete lie, complete falsehood. There's no evidence to support this whatsoever. But the mainstream media in the West brainwashed people to believe this. And so I think that's why some people turn their backs on him. But I think people are starting to get over this now. I think this isn't so much a big deal anymore. I think that people are seeing the seriousness that this case poses to press freedoms, the First Amendment, and then also just the general public's right to access information and their general right to know. I also want to mention, too, Lee, that we did get a chance to see and hear Assange in the courtroom yesterday. It's not often that we get to see him because he's not always in attendance at the court hearings, but he was there uh, yesterday. And while I do want to point out that there is no doubt that he is very much suffering in this prison, he sounded okay. He looked better than what he looked like in previous court hearings, but we were able to see and hear from him, but it was just very briefly. He gave his name and date of birth, but it is still a very devastating decision. And that's not to in any way undermine the amount of suffering that he has been going through. And of course, you know, April 11th, uh, we just had the three-year anniversary since his arrest. So he's been in in this prison going on four years now, and that's probably taking its toll on him, sadly. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Because as I say, uh, I'm empathetic, especially because I've had strokes, and uh, I can't imagine what it must be like for Julian Assange to be in prison after having, you know, I'm sure he's dealt with this too. One of the weird things about having a stroke is you're in this middle period after you've had it where you're wondering, and a lot of people are wondering, how much of your capabilities you will get back, capacities. Uh, and I'm sure Assange just said the same thing. I don't know what how the stroke affected him. How did you see it affect him? Do you hear it in a speech or... That's a good question. The details surrounding this stroke are somewhat unclear or unknown, rather. From what I understand, it was a mini stroke. But of course, this could be an indicator of a larger, more serious stroke in the future. So it's, of course, very concerning. But the details of how it impacted him have not been uh, discussed or revealed to the public. Now, his health and his uh, well-being, it has been made very clear from doctors who had visited him in the embassy. And again, this was 
going on three years ago now, who were really sounding the alarm and very concerned about his health and well-being, which I assume perhaps has only gotten worse while being in Belmarsh Prison. But the exact details of his stroke are are unknown. And a mini stroke, if I can make an analogy, is slightly weird. Uh, it's like finding out your house is on an earthquake fault, directly on an earthquake fault, and it suffers a 1.0 earthquake. It doesn't make it better that your friends tell you it was only 1.0. You you missed the point. I have an earthquake fault under my house, and you're just waiting. And that's is one of the frightening things about it is that my doctor made it very clear. You know, I'm and Assange, he, anyone could have a stroke at any time, but when you've had one, you've got an, an indicator that you're prone to him and wondering when the big one's going to hit is, is one of the most frightening things about this. And I'm sure Julian Assange has been dealing with that in his own way. He's got to. He's a human being. And uh, so that's does that make sense? So saying it's like an earthquake fault under your house. Yes, that's a good analogy. And it's understandable how uh, difficult that would be and how worrying as well. Yes. And I can't imagine being in prison with an uncertain fate uh, on top of that. And that's why I've said I think in a way, what the U.S. is doing and Great Britain is a slow motion form of torture. Do you agree? Yes. Yes. And in fact, I was speaking to uh, Lori Love, who was a U.K. citizen who was able to successfully beat extradition to the United States. So he was not extradited to the U.S., but he said that the process is oftentimes the punishment. It's a very grueling process to go through of uncertainty. It's difficult. It's painful. It's stressful. And again, it's just very, you know, uncertain facing extradition to a foreign country. And Assange's, his prosecution, if he is prosecuted in the United States, this will set a, a precedent that criminalizes basic in normal journalistic activity, specifically related to news gathering techniques and source protection, this case could could really criminalize just normal journalistic behaviors that journalists have engaged in for years and years. And it's going to shape the future of journalism. So it's very important that he is not extradited because of those broader press freedom implications, but also, too, extraditing Assange to the United States is sentencing him to death. And that is the judge initially denied the extradition request because she felt that it would be oppressive to extradite him. And she was right. Was right, yes. And the reason I brought up Gonzalo Lira is not that there's a comparison between the journalism of Julian Assange, which is huge. The difference Gonzalo's more of a citizen journalist. He's somebody with opinions, but it's the idea, it doesn't matter. It's the idea that reporting things, the value, the life of a journalist 
it's, I think both those cases together show that the United States puts no value on the life of a journalist if they express unestablishment positions. Do you think that's the lesson of these two cases, that your life means nothing to them if they don't like your opinions? Yes, I do. I absolutely do. There is a parallel to be drawn here, and I'm very concerned about Gonzalo Lira. I became familiar with him through his uh, coverage of the crisis in Ukraine. And I think that it's important to note, too, we do not know what happened to him. It remains unclear exactly what had happened. But we do know that Ukraine has a history of killing and torturing journalists, dissidents, and its political opposition, and that there's been a history of threats of harassment, arbitrary detention, assassinations in Ukraine to people who are dissidents. So he could very well be at a grave risk and could be in danger. But again, we do not know. So for people rightly concerned, I would say contact the Chilean foreign ministry because he is also a Chilean citizen. I'm not sure if the United States is going to step up on this matter. But there is a parallel to be drawn, and it really does show, as you say, Lee, that it seems the United States government does not value the free press and does not care about the lives of journalists who happen to report in a way or share a view that does not go in line with the establishment narrative. And you, you're one of the leading free speech journalists in the world, Taylor. You've been covering a case of a man who's Dutch, and it's another important free speech case. Talk about that. Yes, yeah, so this is the case of Willem Engel. He is a Dutch activist who has been upholding freedom of speech, human rights, and uh, medical freedoms in the Netherlands. He actually has a hearing tomorrow. I interviewed him recently. You could find that interview on the lastamericanvagabond.com. And Willem was charged with sedition or is charged with sedition for encouraging people to peacefully protest and for also providing people with a broader scope of scientific information that was intentionally withheld by the Dutch government. And of course, it's not only the Dutch government that has been withholding scientific information for the past two years. It's many, many governments. But this case is specific to the Netherlands, and we should all be supporting Willem Engel as well. So that's another case in the West where we're seeing somebody who is being uh, targeted for their activism, for their work and for expressing themselves. And it's just something that we should really keep an eye on and, and follow these cases and share the stories of, of those who really take it upon themselves to uphold human rights. And, and the right, because I, I think it's beyond, we, we often refer to these as free speech cases. I think it would be equally valid to refer to them as free thought cases. It's about freedom to think something, not just share it. Do you agree with that, Taylor? Absolutely, great way to put it. It's the freedom to be able to think, to be able to possess a different perspective. Just, it seems that it's almost become a criminal offense now, and it is being criminalized just to have a different perspective. That is in no way a democracy, and we are not a free people if we live in a world where we can't even have a different perspective or different viewpoint. And then, of course, 
that we can't even express that viewpoint either. And the place people can find your work as the important free speech, free thought journalist you are, tell them where to find your work. Yes, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore Taylor Hudak. I'm also on Telegram, Taylor Hudak News. You can follow my work at Activism Munich on YouTube and thelastamericanvagabond.com. Thanks so much for joining us, Taylor. Great appearance. And thanks to Susan Pye in the first hour for talking about immigration. Very important show. This is a free speech zone. This is a free thought zone. We're not afraid of the truth. This has been The Backstory.